Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. I hope you have been enjoying the gospel rehearsal that we've been experiencing as we've been singing songs. Now we're going to look at a 7th century B.C. prophet and see how he would encourage those living in Judah to rehearse the gospel. So direct your attention to God's word in Nahum chapter 1. Let's begin by reading verse 15. Hear the words of the good God that we serve. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Father, we see and we behold What wonderful love you have poured out to us that we should be called children of God. And God, we are overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed this morning that you would adopt rebellious sinners into your family. And then you would rejoice over them with singing. And that is the gospel, Father, and we know that that is only possible because of the perfect life and the perfect death and the perfect resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Send your Spirit now, Father, we ask to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your Word. Send out your light and truth and let them lead us to your holy hill. And then we will go to God, our exceeding joy. And so we confess this morning, Father, that you are our exceeding joy because of Jesus. Help us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What you see is not necessarily what you get, but what you see You will want. Madison Avenue discovered this in the 1960s when Mad Men, these advertising gurus on Madison Avenue in New York City, worked hard to craft the best ideas, the best ads possible to sell what their clients wanted. They worked hard so that they would create this want This desire inside of their targeted customers. One of the leading ad executives of the time, Bill Burnback, who has had a tremendous impact on my preaching, said some of these things. He said, you can say the right thing about a product and nobody will listen. You've got to say it in such a way that people feel it in their gut. Because if they don't feel it, nothing will happen. It's not just what you say that stirs people, it's the way that you say it. Nobody counts the number of ads you run, they just remember the impression you make. Our job is to bring the dead facts to life. 
Ehrenbeck said he noticed that people in the 1960s would be on the subways flipping through their Time magazine, and he thought, oh, that costs us $50,000 to run a one-page ad. This was the 1960s. I don't know what it is now. And he thought, how can I get them to stop? How can I get them to stop and, and look at what I am trying to convey to them for my clients? And so he came up with some of the most famous ads that we know in television and magazine and pop culture. Do you remember the Volkswagen ads of the 60s and 70s that you would see in the newspapers? Very simple. The one where you see the commercial of this Volkswagen driving through this snow and the ice, and it says, do you ever wonder how the guy who drives the snowplow through the snow gets to work so that he can drive the snowplow? And he pulls up in this little VW Bug. It was genius. Alka-Seltzer, do you remember? Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. That was Bill Burnback. Levy's Real Jewish Rye Bread. He said, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's Real Jewish Rye Bread. And they had Asians, African Americans, all kinds of people from different cultures eating this Jewish bread. Avis Car Rental, they took pride in the fact that they were number two. And he played off of that and said, when you're number two, you work harder and you try harder. What about Life Cereal? Remember? Two brothers, we're not going to eat that stuff. Give it to Mikey. He doesn't like anything. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. This is Bill Burnback. He said so much with so little and generated this enormous feeling inside of his audience. He was a genius. Burnback knew that what you see is not necessarily what you get because he knew there were products out there that promised things, and when you bought them, it wasn't what you got. But he knew that what you see, you will want. He knew, if I can stop you in your tracks, and you see something with your eyes, I can generate that want in you. We may be tempted to blame Burn Back and the madmen of the 60s advertising world for creating this world where commercials and advertisements bombard us and make us want things, but that would be wrong. The problem started a long time ago. It's not the madmen that we should have issues with. It's the first man that we should have issues with, Adam. See, strong desires usually lead to taking. In Genesis 3, 6, we read, Moses tells us that when Eve and Adam saw that the fruit was desirable, they took it and they ate it. Strong desires usually lead to taking. What you see and what you dwell on lead you to wanting it. The 7th century prophet Nahum understood basic advertising principles. He knew that in order to get the nation of Judah to love and follow Yahweh, their Lord, he must strike a nerve with their desires. Nahum would probably put this quote by Bill Burnback on Facebook or Twitter. Getting a product known isn't the answer. Getting it wanted is the answer. Some of the best-known product names have failed. Nahum is here to preach so that he stirs up the passions of those living in Judah who are under the oppressive control of the Assyrians. Nahum wants them to want the Lord above 
every dream and every desire and every passion and everything that gets offered to them by the world. He wants to strike a nerve with their desires so that they say, I want God more than anything in this world. He's prophesying, if you remember, about the fall of the capital city of Nineveh. But in verse 15, he redirects Judah's attention to the splendor of Yahweh and the splendor of the gospel. He's trying to get their attention off of Assyria because they're sitting there and waiting with bated breath. When is the Lord going to strike Nineveh down? He's trying to get their eyes off of Assyria, off of Nineveh, and redirect them to God's glory as seen in the gospel. Our big idea today is this. What you see, you will want. Nahum knows that in order to create a desire of hope and a desire of love for the Lord, he must get Judah to fix her gaze on him, on the Lord. Nahum knows the basic advertising principle that what you see, you will want. Look at verse 15 again. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. If you remember from last week, Nahum was ping-ponging back and forth between Judah and Nineveh, or the king of Nineveh. He would address one, and then he would address another. Now he comes back to address the people of God and to redirect their eyes and their gaze to the glories of the gospel. In fact, Nahum is sending out this invitation to Judah to enter into his prophecy, to see something. When you see the word behold there, it's the Hebrew word hene. It means to come inside. It's this invitation to the audience and say, come inside my prophecy and see what I see with my eyes. Some translations have behold or look. It's an invitation by the author to come and see what he sees. So Nahum says to Judah, come here guys, get a load of this. Look, behold, see him up there on the mountains? See the messenger running toward us? He's bringing back good news from the battlefield. Look, you see, messengers in the ancient Near East would run back from the battlefield when they had news of victory. They would run ahead to inform the, the city that the enemy had been defeated and that all was well. And they would bring back good news and peace back to the city. And Nahum is reminding Judah that the worthless one, Assyria, will never pass through Judah again because the Lord is going to utterly wipe them out. Nahum is saying, look Judah, rehearse the gospel. Yahweh has wiped out our enemies. Assyria will never bully us again. It's good news because he's restoring peace or shalom to Judah once again. Nahum is inviting Judah into his prophecy to see the gospel, to see the good news, and to rehearse it. And he's doing that because he knows that the hearts of God's people are so easily divided. 
Nahum knows that it may be some time before his prophecy is fulfilled, before Assyria is destroyed. But he wants them to see that it's a done deal. He's saying, come into my prophecy, look forward into the future with me, and see the messenger coming on the mountaintops. Assyria will be destroyed. But even though God's people know that his enemies will be destroyed, sometimes we get distracted and our hearts are captivated by other things. And that's why Nahum says, look, the gospel is true. Believe it. Rehearse it. Look again and again. Nahum wants Judah to know. Nahum wants us to know that what you see, you will want. Nahum knows that if he can get Judah to keep her eyes on the good news, to keep rehearsing the gospel, then they will want it. It will cause them to love the Lord. Nahum is not just interested in in preaching facts about the fall of Assyria. He wants to stir the emotions and the passions and the affections of the people of God. And the way he does that is by gospel rehearsal. Understand this, Grace, there are 10,000 messages and advertisements that will bombard you every day. And I don't mean simply magazine and television ads, although I do mean those. Sin comes to us every day and says, find pleasure, take joy, relish in blank. You fill in the blank. It's different For each person, but we are all bombarded by sinful desires that promise, but they cannot deliver. And it may not be the big ones like lust and murder and adultery. It might be something like bitterness or unforgiveness. Just hold on to that anger that you feel towards that person. This was Judah's struggle. And that's why you have to read Nahum's prophecy, knowing that he was speaking to the people of God and not just Nineveh. The nation of Judah was concerned about the government of Assyria that was ruling over them, and it occupied their hearts. Judah was constantly thinking about the corrupt leadership of Assyria, how they had to pay taxes, how their tax monies were being used, how they disagreed with the governmental policies that were making them uncomfortable, the laws that were passed down that they did not like. They were constantly wondering what happened to our great country. Their focus was what was happening with the Assyrian government and how evil they are and how the leaders were corrupt and they were passing laws that they didn't like and I'm sure they were talking about it on Facebook and posting pictures and reading books and listening to talk radio and eating up all the facts that they could find and putting bumper stickers on their cars and talking about it in little huddles and working up their emotions and getting angry and whining and complaining and slandering the government and slandering the political leaders on Facebook and they lost their focus on the gospel and the fact that God had forgiven them and the God that they served was in complete control and he had his world and every government under his control. I'm sorry I got lost. Was I talking about Judah or America? What we need in America is 
gospel rehearsal, not government rehearsal. We need more rehearsing and remembering and relishing in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us and less rehearsing and less remembering and less relishing in what the government has not done for us. We need gospel rehearsal and not government rehearsal. Listen, I'm not saying that you cannot get involved. You should be involved. But when you get involved, be a Christian. Let this book form how you react, how you vote, how you think thoughts. Sign petitions. Oh, God, I would love to see the abortion to be illegal in this country. Pray for it. Sign petitions. Do what you have to, but be a Christian when you do it. Be a Christian when you talk to others about marriage. Act like a Christian. And above all, pray. You want to see God change America? Then pray. Say more to God about your frustrations with the government and less to other people on Facebook about it. I've never met anyone who was like, you know, I used to be a Republican, and I read a little blurb that somebody put on Facebook, and I became a Democrat, or vice versa, or anything. I've never seen anyone change their political ideas because of something that someone just put on Facebook. But we throw it out there as if we're going to change the world. Social media is a great tool, but social media is not where change takes place ultimately. Ultimately, change does not happen in the public forums of Facebook or Twitter or town hall meetings or voting booths. Ultimately, change does not happen in public. Change happens in private, in your prayer closet. Imagine what would happen if we went less to public conversations about politics, and more to our prayer closets. God might actually change this country. If I remember correctly, the last time I read the book of James, it said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Not the prayer of the tweeting person. Prayer of the righteous person. And then James goes on to talk about Elijah. How he was just like us. Dealing with everything that we're dealing with. And he prayed and for three and a half years it didn't rain. And then he prayed again and it rained. What's the context of the story of Elijah? First Kings 17 through 18. The story of Elijah is politically packed. Elijah's prayers affect a nation and a king. It seems as if the effectual, fervent prayers of Elijah had an effect on the nation and the president. I mean, king. It's something to think about in an election year. What you see, you will want. Nahum knows that if Judah becomes obsessed with Assyria... And how they're ruling over them with all the policies that they don't like. Then they will lose focus on the Lord. And their affections and emotions and passions will be captivated by the government and not by the gospel. So where does he direct their attention? Look again at verse 15. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. 
Nahum's prophecy is chock full of Nineveh's destruction. They will be utterly cut off. So where does he direct their attention? Once again, he calls them back to the gospel, back to rehearsing the gospel. He instructs Judah to do two things, keep their feasts and fulfill their vows. This was gospel rehearsal for Nahum. He calls them to focus on worship and not their welfare. The feasts of Israel that he's calling them to keep here were celebrated in the spring and summer and in the fall. And Alan Ross, Old Testament commentator, says the festivals in Israel's worship were times of exaltation that elevated life above its earthbound routine to its more glorious aspects as the Creator intended. The festivals were designed to break into and invade the normal and the mundane events of life and to elevate us out of those mundane events, to elevate us to more glorious aspects, namely gospel rehearsal. This is not to say that the normal mundane events of life are insignificant because they aren't. Normal life activity is an act of worship. And more often than not, God moves in our ways and makes us more like Jesus in the very mundane, boring facts of life. As you change diapers and wash dishes and mow your yard and make dinner and put kids to bed, God uses those events to change us. It's how he extends his, his kingdom and his will comes to pass in this world. But the festivals for Israel, and I would argue for us today, corporate worship on Sunday and celebrating somebody in baptism or eating of the Lord's Supper are to be for us as those festivals were for Israel. Those moments where where we leave the mundane behind and we get elevated above it into what we were made to be and to do be a light to the nations and to enjoy God. To refocus us on the gospel and God's plan for the world. The festivals helped Israel and Judah see God. And by seeing him again, they would want him again. Remember, Nahum knows that what you see, you will want. So he asks Judah to keep the festivals The festivals that occurred in spring, summer, and fall uh, often involved, they involved a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. They became opportunities for the people of God to praise the Lord for providing for them, but also times to remember and to rehearse significant events in Israel's past. So the people would be glad because they would gather corporately to give thanks to God for his blessings and they would sing and dance and enjoy the Lord together. And that's what we're supposed to do here every week. Sunday morning is to be a time of us enjoying God together. Imagine if we left church and we said, oh, we really enjoyed God today. You know, that would tickle me so much more than you coming up and saying, Pastor, good sermon. If you said, we enjoyed God today. Oh, that'll give me fire for the next sermon. So what we're supposed to do here each week is, is escape the mundane. Don't you want to escape the dishes? I mean, God works and extends his kingdom through the washing of dishes. But don't you want to leave that behind once a week and come together and get elevated out of the mundane and come and enjoy God and to rehearse the gospel. 
In all of Israel's festivals, this is what they did. They celebrated the gospel. They celebrated God's goodness to them, and they enjoyed the Lord. So all of the festivals, I wish we had time to unpack them. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Celebration of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles were all gospel celebrations, gospel rehearsal, where the people of God recalled God's goodness to them and his plan to redeem them and to make all things new. All of these festivals we know on this side of the cross find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of these festivals were meant to remind the people of God about how earthbound we can be and to elevate us to focus on what we're called to focus on, which is the gospel. That's why Nahum says, keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. I think he's saying, get elevated out of the mundane. Celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Eat the bitter herbs. Eat the lamb. Eat the unleavened bread. Purge sin from your lives. Remember the exodus out of Egypt. Remember how Yahweh saved you. Get out of the earthbound routine. Elevate yourselves out of worrying about the government and Assyria and panicking. And start rehearsing the gospel. Get elevated out of the mundane, Judah. Celebrate the feast of first fruits. Don't hoard what you have. Bring your tithes and offerings. Share with the Levites and the poor and the widows and the orphans and the sojourners. Give to the Lord in recognition that he has blessed you with so much. And get out of the earth-bound routine. Elevate yourselves out of worrying about the government and panicking with what they are doing and start rehearsing the gospel. Get elevated out of the mundane. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Celebrate the giving of the law at Sinai. Read his word. Blow the trumpets. Anticipate the Lord restoring his world and worshiping him on the new earth. Celebrate the Day of Atonement. Offer sacrifices and experience forgiveness. Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Look back to the wilderness wandering and then look forward to the final consummation when God will fulfill all of his promises Get out of the earthbound routine. Elevate yourselves out of worrying about the government and panicking with all the things that they do and start rehearsing the gospel. That's what Nahum's saying in verse 15, or at least that's what my version says. He's saying, leave the mundane things. And God works there, but come together with the people of God. And rehearse the gospel together again. And get reminded why you're here. And be reminded that God's in control of every government in this world. And his kingdom will advance and his will will be done. And come together and enjoy God. Nahum knew that what Judah needed at this point in her history, as she awaited the destruction of Nineveh and Syria, was a renewed focus on the gospel. Nahum knew that if they got wrapped up in politics and government excessively, and that's the key word, then they would lose focus and not be the people that God wanted them to be, which was to be a light to the nations. It's true for us too. If we lose our focus on the gospel, 
we will be swept away by 10,000 other things that stir and captivate our hearts and stir our affections. It's why Nahum was calling Judah to gospel rehearsal. It's why he wants us to rehearse the gospel in verse 15. If we and Judah renew our vision of a great and glorious God, then we will be captivated by him. You see, what you see is what you want. Perhaps this has never been more clearly seen in my life than when several years ago the commercial came out for the Cheesy Bites pizza. Maybe you remember it. My boys were younger and they were obsessed. They kept seeing this commercial and they were fascinated by this pizza that when you got your own piece, instead of just a boring crust that they would discard, each one had little bites and they were stuffed full of cheese. And that's all they talked about was the Cheesy Bites pizza. And the advertisers were so clever because they get this scantily clad, beautiful woman to come out and promote it. And the kids were oblivious to that. I mean, they're consumed with the Cheesy Bites pizza. But the adults, you get a scantily clad woman, you've got the men's attention, and you've got the women's because the women look at the woman and say, that's what I want to be like. And they were genius in their advertising. And my kids were obsessed. I want the Cheesy Bites pizza. What you see, you will want. Puritan Thomas Chalmers knew this. He wrote one of the best sermons on gospel rehearsal called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In this sermon, Chalmers says that in order to fight sin, we must fight with a superior, more powerful affection. And that affection is being captivated by Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. You can find it online. I encourage you to read it this week. We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own, to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It places before the eye of the mind him who made the world and with this peculiarity which is is all its own that in the gospel do we so behold God as that we may love God. Chalmers is saying that what you see you will want. He's saying that if your focus is on politics you'll want politics your way. If your focus is on government, you'll want government ran your way. If your focus is on this nation and it consumes you 24-7, you will want this nation run your way. Whatever you are consumed with, you will want. It can be politics, it can be movies, it can be another person. It doesn't matter what it is. What you see, you will want. You can't fight sin By merely being told it's wrong or knowing that it's wrong. You must replace your desire for sin with a new, powerful, gospel-centered affection that has power to kick out sinful desires. That's what Nahum's saying to Judah. Keep the feasts. Keep worshiping and giving and celebrating. Because when you do that... You will see God. You will be rehearsing the gospel. 
And that's why we are about to celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper here this morning. That's why we keep worshiping no matter what happens to our country or our world. That's why we keep giving and celebrating because when we do that is when we see God. And when we do that, we'll be rehearsing the gospel. What you see, you will want. The Lord has given us some great gospel advertisements to captivate our attention so that we just don't flip through the pages of life. He's given us the bread and the cup so that once again we may come together as the people of God and be reminded of all that God is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what these elements are for, that we would look and behold God and be captivated by him. It's not just bread and juice. It's what they represent. They represent God the Father out of his great love sending his son Jesus Christ to remedy our spiritual condition. And the fact of the matter is that we are all conceived as dead, rebellious sinners. And we come into this world, every single one of us, as dead, spiritually dead, rebellious sinners who deserve God's wrath because of the first man, Adam. His sin came to me, all my kids, my wife, and every single one of you. And God, out of his great love, said, let me send Jesus. He will be perfectly man and perfectly God, 100% God. 100% man with those two natures united together in one person. Jesus did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life. Think about that. He never sinned once. And when you fess up and you admit, I'm a sinner. I trust in Jesus. Then God takes Jesus' perfect record and gives it to you. And he takes your life. He takes this past week. Do we need to go back any further? He takes your entire life. And he puts it on his son. And now he sees you protected by the perfect life of his son. And then he turns his eyes towards his son. And he sees your life. And he sees my life. The the thoughts that we think. The words that come out of our mouth. The things that we do with our hands and feet. And the motives that drive us. And all those who he would redeem. He takes their life. Puts it on his son. And like a freight train. Comes barreling through with his justice and wrath. And pours out his wrath upon his son. And here we are guilty. Covered by the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And if you admit That's me. I believe, I trust. The Bible says you will be born again. You will become a Christian, a disciple. You will be adopted into the family of God. Will you do that today? If you don't, then you will be over here. And God will come at you like a freight train with his justice and his wrath. And forever and eternity in hell, in a physical body, you will suffer because of your sin and your rebellion. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent Jesus to take your place. Will you believe today?
And then once you believe and you get adopted into his family and you start enjoying his family, you'll have those days where you really blow it, where you put your kids to bed and they get up again and you're like, get back in that room. And you blow it and you feel terrible. And what do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments when you're driving to Santa Barbara and you get stuck in traffic and you get frustrated and you say something to the person in front of you? Or maybe you have a discussion with your spouse and you say something that you meant that was in your heart that came out of your mouth, but you tell your spouse you didn't mean it. What do you do when you get caught like that? You do what Nahum is telling us to do. You rehearse the gospel and you say, God, I thank you that you made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. And you say, that's 2 Corinthians 5. And you say, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then you go to Colossians 1 and you say, thank you, God, that you, you qualified me. I didn't qualify myself. You qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is gospel rehearsal. Once you believe and trust in the gospel the first time, and you just keep coming back to it time and time again. And that's what we're about to do here this morning. Rehearse the gospel together and to enjoy the peace that we have with God because of Jesus. It's so simple, but it's so amazing. It's too good to be true, isn't it? I I, I can't believe it sometimes, but I believe it with all of my heart. Let's seek the Lord now. Father, we look to you this morning. We look to you once again. We look to you and we look to these elements so that we will desire you and that we will want you again. Would you open our eyes to see the beauty of your son and his life and death and resurrection? Would you stir our hearts this morning, God, so that we would rehearse the gospel, so that the gospel would come in once again and kick out the desires that we have for sin? Would you come to us this morning, Father, and remind us of your sovereignty, that this nation and every other nation and every political leader and every person in this world is under you and that you are in complete control and would you help us to rest in that and would you help us to vote and to sign petitions and to do whatever we need to do but would you help us to be Christian would you help us to rehearse the gospel of those times that we get frustrated God those times that we pray and say God would you please outlaw abortion would you please change legislation when we get frustrated because we don't see it happening just like judah got frustrated when they didn't see you wiping out assyria immediately would you help us to rehearse the gospel and would you help us to come together again in corporate worship to leave the mundane and get elevated into that place of enjoying the peace that we have with you would you do it now prepare our hearts In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. 
For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.